Welcome to Voices of Esalen, the podcast that delves into the compelling and often complex tapestry of human potential, consciousness, and creativity. I'm Sam Stern. Today, we're taking a journey into the Esalen archives to explore the thought-provoking theories of Terence McKenna, an Esalen luminary, if there's ever been one. McKenna is a thinker who's had a profound impact on culture, particularly regarding our understanding of altered states of consciousness. For those of you who've been with us for a while on this Voices of Esalen journey, you'll know that this isn't my first foray into the world of Terence McKenna. He lectured at Esalen many, many times, and I've featured his insights here in multiple previous episodes. I believe the more you listen to McKenna, the more you recognize the layers of depth and significance in his body of work. There simply are no missteps or unremarkable talks when it comes to McKenna. Thus, we venture on. Now, in this episode, which is actually just part of a talk that McKenna gave at Esalen in August of 1992, we will explore one of his most popular theories, that which has been referred to as his stoned ape hypothesis. If there was a greatest hits album for Terence McKenna, this would certainly be on it. So the stone date hypothesis posits that the ingestion of psilocybin mushrooms had transformative effects on early Homo sapiens communities, likely shaping the course of our very evolution. McKenna believes psilocybin may have altered human behavior and societal structures by suppressing, for one, male dominance hierarchies, by enhancing communal values, by improving hunting capabilities, and in many cases, fueling ecstatic orgies, yeah. So sit back, open your mind, and prepare for a journey through the sometimes controversial but always enlightening world of Terence McKenna's theories on psychedelics, evolution, and human potential. What I wanted to do this morning was just take a little bit of time and sort of lay out the premises from which I'm operating. I, I don't like repeating myself, but on the other hand, you know, I suppose if you were Darwin, you would always end up talking about evolution. And if you were Einstein, they wouldn't let you get away without discussing general relativity. So since these ideas are... Uh, pretty much mine in the sense of that I proposed them and nobody else wanted them. <laughs> to keep them alive, I have to keep uh, repeating them. When I think about my ideology, if that's the word for it, it seems to come in two forms, and one is embedded within the other. First of all, there's a, a rational, believe it or not, core that is argumentative, uses the vocabulary of evolutionary biology and cultural anthropology. And we talked a little bit about that last night. But it's embedded in a much larger irrational surround, uh, a matrix of, uh, of more intuitional constructs. The rational core is simply to, and if any of you are interested in my books, there's now three books out that sort of complicates the situation. But the book called um, Food of the Gods is very deliberately designed as a kind of Trojan horse. It is something left on the doorstep of anthropology, a foundling, as it were. And when they open the door, they will find this thing on their doorstep. And it ta hopefully take it inside 
and then discover too late that the elf machines of hyperspace, like Greek militiamen, were hiding inside, ready to pour out and take over the bastions of uh, human emergence theory. Because I think to, to account for human beings, we are going to have to go outside the uh, normal constraints of evolutionary theory. This is the great mystery of evolution, is ourselves, and how it is that after millions of years of glacially slow and metastable modification of the primate phylogeny, for some reason, about two to two and a half million years ago, a kind of evolutionary brush fire broke out in the primate line. And in a very, very short amount of evolutionary time, the brains of human beings doubled in size. This is what Lumsden has called, Lumsden, who's an evolutionary primatologist at Harvard, calls the most explosive and dramatic doubling of, the, of a major organ of a higher animal in the entire fossil record. Well, notice that there's something a little odd about this miracle embedded at the center of Darwinian evolution. The, the odd thing about it is that this organ, which underwent this spectacular and mysterious doubling, <coughs> is the organ which generated the theory of evolution itself. So there's a kind of tautology here. The, the theory explains all of nature except its own source. And so then we need to try and understand, you know, what happened to us? How is it that we have been drawn out of nature for some other destiny, a destiny made in the presence of language, technology, art, poetry, theater, and so forth? What is this that uh, has overcome our species? And you might think, since science has been fairly thorough in its modeling of the world, that there is some great edifice of established theory which we are going to propose to go in and blow up and replace with our own structure. This is not the case. There's very, the competition is weak and uncertain of itself. There is no theory that is very convincing about uh, human emergence and why it happened. Uh, the best straight theory going is that uh, being weak creatures, but with a behavior linked to hunting, we develop the technique of throwing things very accurately long distances in order to predate on large mammals. Well, this would make the big league baseball pitcher essentially the pinnacle of the human evolutionary pyramid. And it is true that the ability to throw a small object 120 feet at about 80 miles an hour and pass it through a hole two and a half feet across 
is a unique animal behavior for sure. <laughs> but you know, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't look to me like it opens the straight path to Milton, Van Morrison, Frank Lloyd Wright, and to, uh, you know, I don't know what, Beth Mittler or something. Uh, there's something missing in there. I think that the great unexamined factor in human evolution is diet. And that this is a broader argument than the hallucinogens that we're talking about. This is something evolutionary biologists need to take to heart. You see, if you study evolution, they will tell you that uh, uh, evolution is caused by uh, mutation meeting random natural selection. Random mutation meets natural selection. And when you ask, where does this mutation come from, they s will tell you, well, it's largely driven by cosmic radiation, hard radiation striking the germ cells of an organism can alter chromosomes and present new combinations uh, for natural selection. This is actually a very simplified version of what is going on. It is true that ambient cosmic radiation is inputting into the evolutionary process, but really it is simply representative of stress. And stress is what causes mutation. And it need not be hard radiation in the form of cosmic rays. It can be toxins in the environment, such as artificial toxins, such as you know, PCBs and DDT and these kinds of things. But it can also be environmental stress. And what interests me is uh, the effect of reformulations of nutritional habits. You see, what has happened to us is, like all animal species, we tended to evolve toward the occupation of a niche. In the case of the higher primates, it was an arboreal niche in the canopies of climaxed rainforests in the tropics. And we uh, primates occupied these kinds of niches as early as 15 to 20 million years ago, even earlier in some cases. And there, it would have tended to stabilize were it not for the climatological dynamics of the planet. About two million years ago, these unbroken rainforest ecosystems in the tropics, especially in Africa, began to come under pressure from retraction of rainfall levels. And grasslands began to form especially in the part of Africa which is now the Saharan Desert. You all know about the Sahel and the ebb and flow of the zone of habitability in the southern Sahara. Well, this has been going on for a million years or more, the progressive drying of the Sahara Desert. When our remote canopy living ancestors became subject to this environmental pressure, they began exploring a new set of behaviors and adaptations that were involved with forays down onto the new environment 
of the grasslands. This promoted bipedalism. Binocular vision was probably already highly evolved because we see it in canopy-dwelling monkeys. And so was a complex set of pack signaling behaviors. Not language, not even proto-language, but an advanced system of signaling. Well, when we descended then onto the grasslands, this was largely in response to nutritional pressure. And it was at this time that we began to experiment with an omnivorous diet, uh, the point in time in which we ceased to be fruititarian, insectivore-type creatures, and began to experiment with small animal kills, and possibly also the cooking of food, because cooking is a strategy for, for chemically degrading toxin into more digestible forms. Well, if you know anything about animal behavior, most animals tend to specialize their diet very, very specifically in the case of insects and birds. This is, uh, you would think that this is a counterintuitional strategy. You would think that an animal that could accept many kinds of foods would have a better survival chance than one with a narrow food specialization. Why then do animals specialize their diets? Well, it's because there's an even more important factor in the environment, and that is exposure to mutagens. Animals and plants tend to, the technical term is sequester, meaning locate and hold toxic materials in various tissues of their body. Many plants are, to are toxic. This is to discour discourage predation. Well, if you begin, if you are an animal under dietary pressure and you begin experimenting with expanding your diet, then there will be a sudden increase in mutation within your population because of exposure to exotic chemical compounds that are breaking chromosomes and so forth and so on. And this is what happened to us on a massive scale. Plants sequester compounds which uh, can promote growth, can suppress fertility, can confer sudden bursts of energy like caffeine and amphetamine, can confer sexual arousal or suppression, can promote uh, loss or growth of body hair. I mean, there are a whole number of parameters that will be affected by uh, the foods that an animal is accepting. And among these, and to my mind, requiring focus, if we're going to understand what happened to us evolutionarily, are hallucinogenic plants. When our remote ancestors descended onto the African veldt, what they encountered was a situation in which large ungulate mammals were evolving. Primitive cattle, antelope, bison-like creatures. This was the typical style of the African veldt of a million and a half to two million years ago. And in the dung of these animals, numerous uh, mushrooms had vectored in on this as uh, 
the environment in which it was most easy for them to germinate and fruit and to express themselves. And if you've ever been in the warm tropics where cattle are being ranched, you can come out after a night of uh, soft rain and there will be Stropharia cubensis mushrooms the size of dinner plates, you know, scattered across these fields. I mean, it's an extraordinarily noticeable part of the environment. When I was in Kenya years ago, I observed baboons and their behavior. And baboons are extraordinarily interested in what we call in Western Colorado cow pies, uh, deposits of manure, because baboons eat a lot of insect protein. And, and so when you watch baboons on the veldt, one of their behaviors is they, they locate cow pies and they scramble over to them and they flip them over. They're looking for carrion beetles or, or pupa of, uh, of bugs and stuff like this. And chimpanzees and baboons will test foods for their edibility. Recently, there was work done in Kenya and Zaire showing that chimpanzees have a whole medical pharmacopoeia. They observe these chimpanzees, and most of the time, they're happily eating their regular foodstuffs. But with, if one of them uh, becomes ill, it will separate off from the group and often walk long distances to certain plants. And then they will select these plants and hold them in their mouth for a few minutes, and then spit them out and absorb the the, the uh, active principle this way. Well, this shows, you know, that there was medicine before there was human cognition, in a sense. And you have to realize that we were evolving in this context and certainly would have tested the psilocybin mushrooms for their food value in a situation where we were uh, having a hard time getting three squares a day together. The question is, has there been research done giving psilocybin to primates to see how it affects their behavior? This would be good work that could be done because as long as you're not giving these things to human beings, you can get an, a uh, you know, research permission much easier. Uh, it would be important for my theory to do this kind of thing. My notion of how we went from being an advanced primate to being a fully formed human being involves psilocybin in three distinct stages. And it not only offers an explanation for how we emerged into consciousness, but it also offers an, uh, a model for how we could have then lost a significant portion of that consciousness through submission to the process of historicity, which I talked about last night. It's pretty simple and fairly easy to understand. It works like this. Psilocybin, accepted into the diet by a hunting and gathering primate, accepted just as one more root, nut, corm, or uh, you know, source of protein, at doses so low that you could not feel it 
you would not have a feeling of being stoned or uh, agitated. You would have no feeling at all. Very low doses of psilocybin improve visual acuity. And they have done numerous tests to show this. It improves edge detection. Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that if you have an animal that is evolving under evolutionary pressure and there is a factor in the environment which improves vision, that those animals which accept this vision-improving item in their diet are going to have more success at hunting than their competitors who refuse this dietary item. So in a sense, at this low level of dosage, the psilocybin acts like chemical binoculars and the animals availing themselves of this technological enhancement of the hunting process is essentially what it is, will be more successful hunters, hence have more protein for their children, hence their children will reach reproductive age in greater numbers, hence the non-psilocybin mem using members of the population will be bred out. And I think this probably happened. Now, at slightly higher levels, you, you get, and now we're talking the two to three gram level, or maybe for these early hominids and proto-hominids, a one to three gram level, because they probably were fairly gracile. They probably weighed between 90 and 120 pounds. They were more slight than we are. They, at, uh, at intermediate dose levels, psilocybin, like all central nervous system stimulators, causes what's called arousal. And this it has several components. Arousal is what you feel if you drink two double cappuccinos in short order. It's an inability to sit down. It's restlessness. It's uh, you know, you want to get up and dance, you want to do something, you're fully alert. And in highly sexed animals like primates, it also means sexual arousal because it promotes um, erection in males. So what you have here then is an, the equivalent of an enzyme which is accelerating sexual activity among the population and causing more instances of what anthropologists call successful copulations. This means sexual encounters in which um, impregnation actually takes place. So this is a second factor promoting the outbreeding of the non-psilocybin using members of the population from looking at thousands and thousands of psychedelic experiences, a few hundred of my own and then lots of other people's, what the generalization that emerges from looking at these, when you say, what do psychedelics do that is true for all men, all women, all cultures, all times, all places, is it dissolves boundaries. It dissolves boundaries between people, between society and nature, between the shaman 
and the invisible dimensions in which he or she is trying to work. Well, this boundary dissolving in the presence of this uh, arousal with its sexual component led very naturally to a style of orgy. And I talked a little bit about this last night, how the male dominance hierarchies established in the primates clear back to lemurs are disrupted by this dietary factor. You see, it's a behavioral disruption. The ordinary primate tendency is for the long-fanged, uh, firm-muscled younger males to take control and by coercion and the manipulation of pain and food sources and so forth, everybody is forced to fall into line. In the presence of this new dietary item encountered in the African Veltland, this male, this tendency toward male dominance is dissolved. I imagine the style of much mushroom using was lunar and that probably what was happening was a religion which started out as an intuition about cattle coalesced into a kind of social symbiosis because the cattle are the source of the mushroom. I'm sure to a person without our modern categories, the mushroom emerging from the dung of the cow makes it as much a part of the cow as milk or hide or horn or meat. You know, it's just part of the deal. Orgy is a social strategy for objectifying this feeling of boundary dissolution. And I think you cannot expect to get together a bunch of hungry, horny proto-hominids give them a bunch of mushrooms under a full moon and uh, you know in the absence of the fine moral uh, precepts that we have evolved i think they would just all jump each other's bones there in a heap and uh, the consequence of this are first of all boundary dissolution a tendency for men not to control women or for males not to control females, since we're not clear we've even reached the human stage at this level. And you see, the consequences of orgy are that men cannot trace lines of male paternity. Women know whose children are whose because they see the child emerge from their body. But men do not have the focused notion of fatherhood that comes later. The children are our children. They belong to the group, and the loyalty of the males is toward the group. This promotes food sharing. It promotes sharing of sexual partners. It promotes community, in short. And I think this, that the high Paleolithic in Africa was characterized by a symbiotic relationship between human beings and cattle, the worship of a great goddess who was imaged as female, and she was a horned goddess because she was a goddess of cattle, and the, uh, you know, the style of worship was 
lunar, communal, and orgiastic. And the presence of psilocybin in such large amounts in this population suppressed the tendency to male dominance hierarchies. And for a long time, maybe a quarter of a million years, the, this symbiotic relationship was tightening. I mean, human beings were taking mushrooms long before cattle were domesticated. But slowly, our fascination with mushrooms, cattle, and our need to uh, you know, predate on this source of protein brought us into closer and closer confluence until finally, about 25,000 years ago, past true nomadic pastoralism emerged. The domestication of cattle, the maintenance of populations of cattle by human populations, and a style of yearly wandering. And in that situation, uh, essentially, we reached the pinnacle of human civilization, if you will, because the roles between men and women were balanced, the earth was honored, poetry, dance, theater, magic, the arts of song and uh, story, the arts of carving and music making, all of this was perfected. And people were at peace. Mind and nature were at peace. This is why we have so deeply embedded in us what anthropologists call the nostalgia for paradise. It's because it actually existed. And it, it was the perfection of the human adaptive experiment. That was the idea, that mind should be in nature in a relationship of religious worship and, uh, and uh, caring and maintenance and balance. And then comes the curve. What time in history would you say that began? Well, if it ended about 15 to 20,000 years ago, then it must have begun perhaps as much as half a million years earlier. The oldest fully complete Homo sapien skeletons are 100,000 years old from the Classis Cave River Mouth site in South Africa. See, the amazing thing about human beings is not the age, but how new all this is. I mean, 100,000 years ago, the first anatomically modern people emerged. The first flute was made 25,000 years ago. All of what we call human history is basically under 10,000 years. And so, and we'll be talking a lot about this, about how sudden whatever it is that is happening to us uh, is. Uh, now, what then, if this was so wonderful, this situation in prehistory, then I think this was your question this morning, then why did people ever give it up? What went wrong? Well. You know, it's like an opera. The very forces that created this partnership paradise, this suppression of hierarchy and this elevation of the feminine 
the orgiastic, the feeling-toned, and the intuitive, the very forces which brought that forward were the climatological dynamics of the planet, the drying up of Africa. And that process continued past the optimum point for this new human adaptation. And the Saharan Desert, which had previously been this wonderful grassland cut by uh, streams and full of game animals and uh, you know, vast uh, exploitable resources for these pastoral nomads, began to dry up. And the mushrooms began to be less available. The places where I think this partnership Eden existed are today some of the most hellish places on the planet. I'm thinking of the Teseli Plateau of southern Algeria, where there are actually uh, rock carvings that are dated to uh, 12 to 14,000 years ago that actually show human beings, shamans, with mushrooms sprouting out of their bodies and fists full of mushrooms, uh, that area now looks like the Four Corners area of the United States. I mean, it is a badlands uh, like nothing you've ever seen. Uh, so this process of desertification began to intensify. And as it intensified, the mushrooms became less and less plentiful, so that at first they were seasonal. Then they were only in the rain shadows of mountains. Meanwhile, the human population is responding to this evolving scarcity, which may have occurred over thousands of years, by uh, creating the institution of shaman so that only a restricted class of people can take the mushroom. They become essentially the professional go-betweens between the mystery and the people. And ultimately, things get so bad that the whole thing dies out, and it dies out around 14 to 12,000 years ago, at the very moment that agriculture is being born. Agriculture is a response to this same devolution of the quality of the environment. It's a strategy for getting food. Well, as I said last night, as the mushroom religion faded, these primate behaviors, which had been chemically suppressed for half a million years, let's say, lo and behold, when the psilocybin drained away, the same vicious, long-fanged monkey is revealed to be there. It was there all the time. But during the period of its suppression, altruism, community values, self-sacrifice, uh, love, care for others, all of these human values evolved. So about 10 to 12,000 years ago, there was a tremendous hardening of the human world. People, it became ugly. The partnership society decayed. Men again emerged to dominate women. Now, an interesting thing drove this, and you can see it in the evolution of agriculture, too. Men finally put it together that the sex act 
was linked to the fact of birth. It was as though uh, people's brain size evolved sufficiently that they could finally hold in their mind the concept of a cause and a distant effect. You know, that this moment of, of, of sexual pleasure down behind the dunes, nine months later, turns into the emergence of a new member of the tribe. Right. Now, at the same time, and, and you see what that is, is that's a connection through time of a cause and effect. It requires a certain intellectual leap to understand that. Well, at the same time men were figuring this out, women, who had traditionally been the gatherers in this hunter-gatherer equation, were noticing that on this yearly nomadic round from various water holes that the cattle were being moved through, that when they would return to old camps, there where they had discarded the trash and the food would be food plants. And what happened, in other words, it was the same perception as the men were having. It was bury food, come back a year later, food will be in this place. And, and it created a tragic collapse of the cultural database because women had previously had a vast amount of information about plants, where they grew, what they looked like, what their seasonality was about, methods of gathering and preparing and storing them. And then at some point somebody said, what do we need with this? Let's just concentrate on five cereals and we can jettison this whole exotic database. And the thing about agriculture, you see, that made it impossible to turn away from once it was discovered, especially early agriculture, which went on in the most fertile river bottoms in the world, was it's, a it's so successful that it always creates um, surplus. And a surplus it was something people had never had before in a hunting and gathering culture. When you have surplus in a hunting and gathering culture, you have a party. When you have surplus in an agricultural culture, you build a grain storage tower to uh, put your surplus in. You immediately establish the concept of haves and have-nots. Once you have a surplus, you must defend the surplus against the lazy people two hills over who didn't do like you did and now they're there with their hand out you know and they're not part of your sib group and so they you know you have to reject them so what agriculture meant was sedentary living you cannot haul tons and tons of grain around if you're following cattle around instead you say we will live in this river valley we will pen our cattle and we will till our fields and we will live in an entirely new way and men were saying oh yeah and there's one more thing this orgy business we're going to legislate that out of existence because i want to know who my, I, well, first of all, I want a woman or women, I want my women, 
and then from those women will come my children and I will hunt for my children and you get the earliest notion of focusing on the extended family rather than the tribe it's a retraction of focus that waits until after the industrial revolution to get down to the one man one woman 2.2 children formulation which is the most neurotic of all thanks so much for listening to voices of esalen today's show was produced in conjunction with sheer levine our theme music is by nico holloman esalen institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org.